If you know these things, the Bible says, happy are you when you do them. Here's the thing. We can have all the best intentions. I know. I have been to seminars, and I sit there and I say, I know that. Yeah, okay. I'm going to do that. We talked about the piano yesterday, right? You kind of have to put it in practice. So, for the rest of the week, after uh, when uh, Vicky and uh, Evelyn are talking to you, you are going to be having points, and you should be making decisions and putting them into practice. When? Today. today. All right, got it. <laughs> today. Not, don't wait until tomorrow. Put them into practice today. All right? Now, with that, we need to know one more thing. Our health is more than our weight. Okay? You and I are more than our weight. And our health is what we're after. Right? Okay, good. So now, this is someone 120 pounds, and this is uh, an MRI looking at that individual. And you see the red there? That's muscle, right? These are the internal organs there. And you see this, uh, this stuff out here? That white stuff there? That's fat, okay? 120 pounds. This is after they've gained some weight, okay? This person is now 250 pounds, and that's the adipose tissue that you see there. Now, I want to tell you something that you may not have heard before. Maybe some of you have, but you may not have heard this before. Fat is a problem, but it's not the major problem. We all need fat. If we, if we lose all of our fat, we will die. We need fat. The problem is when we have overfat, okay? Overfat is the problem, right? But as I will show you, it's not just over fat. Because depending on where the fat is distributed, we will have a different effect. If the fat is below the skin, but not around the internal organs, this, what we call subcutaneous fat, is almost metabolically inert. It, it doesn't contribute to the high risk of diabetes and prediabetes and hypertension and coronary artery disease and things like that, right? So the subcutaneous fat is not the problem, right? The problem is this fat here. That's the fat that's around the internal organs. We call that visceral fat. Can you say that word? Visceral? Yeah, visceral fat. Now, you, you can't look at somebody and see their visceral fat. You have to open them up or you have to do some kind of imaging to look on the inside to see what's going on. That should be a lesson to us. We cannot determine visceral fat by just looking at somebody, right? But you know, in, ter in the terms of prediabetes and diabetes, it's not just only visceral fat per se, but which organs are involved. And the two major organs that are involved are the liver and the pancreas. Fat accumulated in the liver, so-called fatty liver disease, this is a major problem. It's epidemic in the United States right now. Fatty liver disease, right? So we have fat that's accumulating in the liver. And in the past, we thought that this was only because of people who were drinking alcohol. You know, the beer and the beer belly and whatnot. No, 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 no. It's, it's also associated with how we live and the choices that we make. Okay? So this fat, this visceral fat, is the problem, and the one around the liver and in the liver 
and around and in the pancreas. Those two organs, those are the major ones. Now, if you look at uh, on a frontal view how this is distributed, you will see that some people have a distribution that's centrally, and some people have a distribution that's a little bit lower down. This is called uh, an apple-shaped fat, and this one is called a pear-shaped fat. This one is typically what we see in females. This one we see in men and women. This one is also called gynoid for women, and this is called android for men, but it's seen in men and women. This is the one, the apple shape is the bad one, okay? This one does not increase the risk appreciably for diabetes, prediabetes, hypertension, coronary artery disease. The apple one around the center, right? That's where we have the problem, right? So one of the ways that we can estimate what's, uh, what that is like is to look at the waist size. So people who have large waists, especially if the rest of their body is not large, right? This is an indication that more than likely they're gonna have a problem with increased risk for prediabetes, diabetes, hypertension, coronary artery disease, okay? Oh, I didn't turn this off, sorry. Uh, this is looking at a schematic for Yes, a schematic of uh, kind of what's, what's going on on the inside. Now, if you were to just take a quick blush, this is, of course, an artist's rendition of what's happening. We don't have little men in our tummies doing anything like that. But the kids, on the, the kids like this idea, right? But you see how nice and clean and well operating this one looks? As opposed to this one, it's kind of junky and uh, dirty and things are happening in there. They, they have to fix everything, right? Well, depending on what our fuel is and our use of the fuel, right? would make a difference as to what's going on on the inside of us. And even though here we're looking at like the inside of the abdomen or something like this, really it's the, it's the inside of all of us. And, and I characterize that as soup. All that stuff that's mixed up together that, that make us and bathes ourselves, that, that's our soup, okay? And that soup, the quality of that soup makes a difference in terms of our risk for disease and or our uh, realization of health and being healthy. And the interesting thing is that this soup is not only affecting the physical nature of us, it's also affecting because it's bathing our brains. It's affecting our mental and our spiritual life. Okay? That's, that, that's, <laughs> that's a big deal. It's affecting all of us, okay? So here's one way of looking at it. The amount of energy we expend, and how do we expend energy, by the way? What do we use to expend energy? The major thing that, ex that expends energy. Exercise, right? Our muscles are big on that. Now our brains also expend energy, thank God, <laughs> right? Uh, we use our brains. But so energy expenditure, the, the amount of energy that we take in, the composition of foods, whether it's processed or not processed, or what the, what the contribution is and the different percentages of things, the uh, environmental chemicals, all of these, and even the, the micro, microbes in our gut, all of these affect what's going on with our external environment to who we are. So it's an external addition to our soup. 
And we also have an internal environment. That internal environment has to do with what we think, what we believe, whether we sleep or we exercise. All of these things change the hormonal chemicals that we have in our bodies. And that's an internal thing. Uh, you know, um, some of the scientific words work better than just plain English words. This is called exogenous because it's outside. This is endogenous. It's, we're making it. We're, we're creating it. And I have another slide to show you that. And then we have a spiritual environment, a spiritual reality that we have that also fits into this. Our worldview, our spiritual life fits into this. And you're saying, but doctor, how does this affect my diabetes? It affects everything, including our proneness to having diabetes or high blood pressure or coronary artery disease or cancer. Okay? And these things, when they work together and they're all in balance and harmony, then they produce health. Or if they're not, they produce disease. Okay? This is the metabolic soup. So, what we do, what we think, who we are, influence what we make. The stuff that we make on the inside. Right? What we intake and what we make can either produce good soup, good cells, good health. Now, there's another diagram that I don't have up there. Can you figure out what it says? The opposite of all this, right? It's what we intake and what we make. If it makes bad soup, then we have bad cells, and therefore we have bad health, which is a misnomer because it's just no health, <laughs> okay? It's not bad goodness. Now... There, uh, this has been recognized by scientists in Adventist studies, or the study of Adventists, and it's been recognized by journalists in magazines. I mean, I have a whole list of, of them, but I'm just going to use one. This one was the U.S. News and World Report. Here's what they said, 11 habits that would help you to live to 100. And if you go down the list, you'll find this one right here. It's number nine on the list in, in the original uh, article. Live like a Seventh-day Adventist. Consider your body as on loan from God. So here are these secular uh, journalists. They say, you want to live to 100? Here is one of the ways you can do this. So it means even the way we look at our bodies and the way we look at who we are makes a difference in what's going to happen and how we're going to live. So, by the way, I, I, I have a, a little problem with, with this statement here myself. Because what I really should write to them and say is not live like a Seventh-day Adventist, but live like a Seventh-day Adventist should. Huh? There's a difference between the two, right? Okay, good. So, anyway, next. So, diabetes. Imagine for all these years, I remember when we were first giving talks on reversing diabetes, we had to say, reversing diabetes. Because if we said reversing diabetes, we would be laughed out of the medical community. At that time, I was giving uh, talks for Weimar, and we had a reversing diabetes uh, seminar that we'd go around. And let me tell you, I cringed every time I saw one of the flyers, because I knew that there'd be doctors who'd be looking at this, and they would be saying, these people, you know, these, these Adventists, they're, they're crazy. but no longer do we have to hide to say reversing diabetes. And what's interesting, it's not the Adventists who publicized that it was reversible. It was actually some people in, in the UK, right, who had listened to this stuff. I remember this, this one situation. 
we were giving a talk in, uh, in Chicago, and there was a young researcher from one of, the, one of our nation's universities. I'm not going to give you the details. Anyway, he came, and uh, he wanted to see what we were doing. And so he was kind of like my shadow for, uh, for the three-day weekend that we had this thing there in Chicago. And following me around, he asked every question in the book. That, that, I mean, he asked me all kinds of questions. Some of them I couldn't even answer. But he asked me all these, all these questions about what we're doing and whatnot. He went back home, okay? And six months later, he published an article on the reversal of type 2 diabetes. Yeah, 24 patients that they did what we did and they published it. Ever since John Harvey Kellogg, we have not really done a good job in publishing what we have done. And it's not because we are humble. It's because we haven't taken the time to do this. Right? So if you're involved in anything that you, you, you can contribute to the advancement of science, and especially like for the Adventist health studies and whatnot, please consider participating because this allows for the world to see what happens with us and wonder. And when they wonder, Ellen White says, it, it awakens a spirit of inquiry. And then we have an opportunity to share with them not how great Seventh-day Adventists are, because we're not great, but rather how great our God is, who loves not just us, but loves them too. Right? So, here's they're saying, Diabetes breakthrough, type 2, can be reversed in weeks by following this diet. <laughs> I tell you, this, this took the, uh, the newspapers and media by storm, and it also took the medical journals by storm. But, you know, this should have been published in the best medical journals. They wouldn't touch it. It had to be done in a specialty journal in order for somebody to say, okay, we're going we're gonna to take a look at it. Right? The type 2 is reversible, but now here's the diet. Eating just 600 calories a day for 8 weeks, you can save the lives of millions of sufferers. Are you impressed? You're not. How many of you know what 600 calories look like? <laughs> right? And, you know, their study was a very well-done study. But it was 600 calories. One of the researchers who was actually involved in the, in the study and who was with that group at uh, the University of Newcastle, I was um, speaking with her, uh, this is about in February, and she was saying, you know, one of the side effects of this diet was hunger. <laughs> One of the side effects of hunger. Ladies and gentlemen, this works, okay? But what we do and what we recommend, as you will be hearing later this week, also works, okay? But you don't have to go around hungry in order to do something that is good, all right? Now, for some people, they need to do this, I, I'll be honest with you, because they don't think anything else will work. And, and you know, in working with patients, it's not just a science of, of medicine, it's also the art. There are some guys, they come kicking and screaming because their wife says, if you don't do something, we're going to get a divorce. Say, okay, okay. So they come. They're not intending to do anything. Well, for these individuals, if you give them something that's easy, they will say like, Naaman. 
this is hogwash. So you have to give them something hard, right? And if you're giving them herbs, you have to give them the bitter herbs, right? So that when they taste it, they say, mm, this must be doing something good <laughs> because there's nothing else good about it, right? But these people, psychologically, they respond to that. They respond to hard things. So this diet works, and it works for people who want to do hard things, who say, I'm going to lick this, okay? All right, so we'll do that. Here are some people who, uh, who uh, were benefited by this uh, kind of approach. But I need to mention that any lifestyle approach that we use, there are certain criteria that, that, has, that, that have to happen, right? And hear me out on this, right? You have to do it enough. You have to have enough of it, okay? Whatever the thing is, whatever you're intervening with, you have to have enough. Too little, mm -mm. you have to have enough of it, right? Whatever that is, okay? You need to do it long enough. Can you help me with this? You have to do it, what else? Frequently enough, right? You know, once a year, doing something uh, for your daily help, it doesn't cut it. You, you, have to, you have to have consistency and you have to have perseverance with it, right? You need to do it along with other interventions that are leading to that same outcome, right? So if there are other things that can work together, you work them together, right? What else? If you have things that cause the problem, what do you need to do with that? Eliminate those things, change them, right? If you know that this is causing this problem, you can be doing all the remedies that you want, but you have to, you know, you have to take care of, of that thing. You know, it's like sometimes, well, I have three, uh, three sons, young men, right? And I remember when one of them was learning how to drive, he was very meticulous about, you know, putting up the handbrake and whatnot. But when he gets into the car, he has to now put the handbrake down, okay? So imagine driving off and the handbrake is up. The car is not very responsive, it's not, it's not moving well. It doesn't matter how much gas you put on that. It doesn't matter which gear you're in, right? What do you have to do? Remove the, remove the handbrake. You need to take the brake off, right? Uh, the other things will not be as effective unless you take off the offending agent. In this case, the other causative conditions. Remove the offending agents, right? Now, this is an example of what's going on with Alzheimer's disease, but it's also a good example of diabetes, as I'll show you in a little while. It's like having a hose or a conduit for water. And imagine you have a long tube, a long pipe, and there's so many holes in it that by the time you get to the other end, right, there's very little water coming through because it's leaked out of all these holes, right? If you patch one of the holes, will that solve the problem? No, what do you have to do? You have to patch them all, or many of them at the same time, for it to work, right? So with Alzheimer's disease, part of the problem why uh, most people are not getting the benefit of Alzheimer's disease, or with diabetes, why some people are not getting the most benefit, it's because they don't understand that the number of defects that might be involved is not just one. So taking one pill, one tablet, doing one thing is not enough. There are multiple defects. In Alzheimer's, for instance, there are 36 different defects that we've found so far, 36. And so the approach that we use, the lifestyle approach for, uh, for dealing with Alzheimer's, if we attack most of them at the same time, we're actually seeing people 
reversing the Alzheimer's disease. Now, so far, we don't have any controlled studies, okay? I want to be careful of this. We don't have any controlled studies that show that Alzheimer's disease is reversed in mass in people. But what we're seeing is that individuals who are willing to subject themselves to making the changes, and usually their family along with them, are making the changes, it is, at least at this point, partially reversible, right? But what we suspect is in Alzheimer's disease, we're looking at 50 to 100 different defects. We just don't know all of them yet, okay? So the issue of the multidimensional disease is what we're, uh, we're coming to. And diabetes, prediabetes, hypertension, coronary disease are multi-things. Type 3 diabetes is Alzheimer's disease. is one of the ways of characterizing it. It's proposed for Alzheimer's disease because there's insulin resistance in the brain. The resistance to insulin and insulin-like growth factors uh, in the brain. This is an important issue, and this is part of what is uh, associated with Alzheimer's disease, right? Okay, now do you know this guy? I know him. So he has cholesterol, so he's eating this way, he's smoking that way, his blood sugar is high, his blood pressure is high, his EKG is abnormal. And his weight is high and he has the distribution around his abdomen. And if we do an ultrasound or we do a CT scan or an MRI, we'll find that he has fatty liver. This guy is a ticking time bomb. But there are many people who are walking around like this. Okay, men. This guy, this is how he looked before, and he found out that he has all of these problems, potential problems. He was enjoying life until the day his doctor said, your blood sugar is too high. He didn't know he had diabetes. This guy's an atheist. Okay? You know what he says? I need to beat this thing. So the doctor told him what to do. And you know what? He lost weight, and his blood sugar was under control. He stopped taking blood pressure medications because his blood pressure was going too low on the medication. But he still was overweight. And he still was toying around with things. And then one day the doctor said, you know, if you keep on like this, I'll have to put you on medication. And he said, okay. I'll get really serious. What do I need to do? For him, he needed to go on a fast. And the doctor put him on a fast. Next thing you know, he lost 30 more pounds. Free of medications. Not using anything. Now I tell you he's an atheist for this reason. He used sheer willpower to do this. He was motivated because he was afraid. Is that why we do things? We're Christians. We do things because we're afraid? I tell you, sometimes we might. But we, <laughs> Jesus says, all power in heaven and earth is given unto him all power. And he's willing to share that power with us to be able to do more than we can even ask for him. Right? 53-year-old male, 
in May 2011, diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. His fasting blood sugar was 153. Hemoglobin A1C, 6.8. His waist was 44 inches. BMI, body mass index, was 30.1. His blood pressure was 145 over 88. In June, he had an ultrasound that showed fatty liver and the enzymes were elevated. This guy, ticking time bomb. In May, the diagnosis, uh, not very worried. In June, blood pressure high, fasting, ultrasound shows what it shows, right? Patient wants to try longer. In September 2011, no more weight change, right? His blood pressure is widely variable. He started on a drug, metformin. In November 2011, he says, I want to get off medicine. I want to beat this thing. And you know what? Once somebody says, I want to do this, okay, this is a golden opportunity. So what? He was admitted to an intensive lifestyle program at one of our lifestyle centers. Okay. In February of 2011, his fasting blood sugar is 87. His hemoglobin A1C is 5.5, normal. This is normal, this is normal. Blood pressure, 116 over 76 without medications, that's normal. He has lost 16 pounds or 7.2 kilos. In May of 2012, his blood sugar fasting is 84. Looking at what happens after eating, it's between 120 and 130. Anything below 140 is normal, so he's normal. His hemoglobin A1C is 5.2. That means over a three-month or four-month period, his blood sugars have been normal, okay? What else? His blood pressure, 110 over 74. He's on no medications. By January of 2013, his blood sugars fasting is 80. His two hours is 6.6, uh, with 120 to 130. His hemoglobin A1C is 5.2. His blood pressure is stable at 110 over 72 without medications. His BMI is 26.6. His waist is now 90 centimeters, right? His liver enzymes are normal. What do you think? Amen? Amen. And this is possible, okay? But the key was that he wanted to get off the medications and beat the thing. He wanted it enough to do something about it. What do we want enough to do something about? It's a serious question. Here are all, uh, every few years, one of the experts in diabetes, Dr. DeFranzo, puts out an accumulation of all of the recent scientific data to demonstrate the multifactorial origin of type 2 diabetes, and this is, this is the latest one, okay? And you'll see all kinds of defects. There are 10 different things that he has here as defects. And what I have done, uh, he also put out what the drugs are that treat these things. These, these all things are drugs, right? I put on this slide what the dietary and lifestyle things are, diet and exercise, 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 diet of plants, exercise, exercise, fasting. Huh. Does that sound pretty complicated to you? Does it sound complicated to you? Changing your diet, exercising, getting adequate rest, drinking water, not being too stressed out, and treating your stress with, you know, the appropriate things like prayer, understanding who you are in God's sight. 
Not just who you are, but whose you are. Hmm? These things work. Okay? So now, the approach is there are multiple defects at once, so we look at a comprehensive approach, general for all, with the same type, but specific for each individual. This personalized here because everybody acts in a different way. And uh, this requires testing, and it requires understanding the soup. Once people understand what is going on with the soup that they're making, uh, we should have these classes that say how to make good soup. Everybody will think it's a cooking class, but it's not, all right? How to make good soup. Well, here's the soup, all right? The issue is we look at an integrated holistic intervention, body, mind, and spirit, okay? And we realize that we're dirt, but we can change the characteristics of that dirt that we're made of because that's the chemicals that are in our bodies, and we can change that through the mechanisms that we're going to discuss. And for Christians, we should understand that this should be for us a delight. It's not drudgery. It's not, oh, no, I have to do this, right? But actually, God wants us to delight in doing what is right, and he wants us to loathe doing what is not, okay? So, how about understanding who has a high probability of having their diabetes and their pre-diabetes diabetes and their obesity taken care of versus those who don't? High probability for diabetes reversal, short duration, or pre-diabetes. If the person has pre-diabetes or have a short duration, so far, you know, let, you know, six years or less or 10 years or less, all right? If they have primarily uh, the kind of diabetes that is insulin resistant, if they have an abundant amount of visceral uh, and ectopic fat, if they're a little bit younger in age, if they have no comorbidity, that they don't have a bunch of other illnesses along with it, if they're able to make substantive changes in their lifestyle, that is, if they have a can-do attitude, if they say, yes, I can do this. Even the atheist who says, I can do this, may be able to get results. But we have another part of that statement. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All right? So, can-do attitude. Compelling reason to live and to thrive. I tell you, for men, when that grandchild, that grandbaby comes along, it's like, whew, I now have something to live for. I should have done this before. <laughs> That's what the men say, right? They also, if they have a supportive environment, social structure, cultural values, if they're perseverant, if they're serious about what they're doing, these people tend to have a better outcome, okay? Those who are lower probability, not impossible, but lower probability, if they have it for more than 10 years after the diagnosis, if their, their body really is not producing insulin and they have to take insulin shots, it's less likely, not impossible, but less likely that they have a reversible situation. If they're older age and skinny, if they have little or no visceral uh, fat, if they have a lot of other comorbidities or complications, it just makes, it means that their metabolism, their brain function, everything is kind of already deranged. It's not impossible to reverse, but it's just lower likelihood that all of these will be taken care of. If they have physical impairments, in other words, they can't do the things that they otherwise would have wanted to do. If they tend to be culture-bound, you know, I must do this because my culture says that this is, this is how I do this is how everybody does it naturally, and I'm going to do it this way. Well, we're asking you to change your culture, right? Behavior change is a culture change, right? And if they have no support, I remember, oh, this one lady, ay, 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 poor, poor woman, she came and... Uh, her husband called me on the phone, and he says, I, I want to tell you that my wife is there at my objection. 
right? She's wasting money and she's wasting time being at your center, right? And if for one minute she or you think that when she comes back, we'll all be eating rabbit food, think again. I just want to let you know this, doctor, right? Ooh, I tell you, this, this was this. But she had told me that her husband didn't really want her to come. And she wanted me to talk to her husband. So when he called, I, I talked to him. But I didn't have to say much. I just listened. Okay. She went home, and we kept in touch. And she went home to a hostile environment because all of the kids were on dad's side, not on mom's side. Okay. But she persisted. Okay. She, she, she was a Christian. She persisted. She didn't argue. She made two sets of meals. One for them, one for her. And you know what? Little by little, they wanted to taste what she had. Okay? And when they tasted and they realized, it tasted good. And because she had a pleasant disposition and she was uh, more honey than vinegar, if you know what I mean, one year later, her husband called me and apologized. He had made changes in his lifestyle. Okay? I tell you, that was a, a, a wonderful success story. I, I wish it would happen all the time like that. But in this particular case, this was particularly hostile. But she persevered, and she made it. She had some support from, from us at the center, and she certainly depended on God for her support, right? There are some people who have a laissez-faire kind of worldview. Ah, anything happens, you know, you got to die for something, right? Yeah, that's, you only go through once, you live with it, you have it. Well, these people, they tend not to be very serious about making changes until something serious happens, and then they say, okay, I'm going to do something, right? All right, so what are the therapies that we use? We use exercise, we use diet, and with the diet, we look at the quantity, and uh, Evelyn and Vicky will talk about that quantity and the calories and what kind of, of, uh, of uh, fats, uh, the quality of the processed fiber-rich versus fiber-poor foods, right? The frequency of eating two meals a day is better than three meals, better than four meals, better than five meals, better than six meals, better than seven meals. You got the picture, right? Content, fructose and non-nutritive sweeteners out, okay? Fasting and fasting mimicking. You can do this, and one of the one of the nice ways to do it is to have two meals a day, right? Two meals a day, six hours apart, and you you go for 18 hours without without eating. Now, it may take a little bit of getting accustomed to it. And you know, when Ellen White wrote about that, every, well, I shouldn't say everybody, many people balked against it. But now the science is showing this, and people are saying, yes, we should be doing this. And if you go on the internet and you look at intermittent fasting, you'll see all this nice stuff about intermittent fasting, and everybody wants to try intermittent fasting. But Adventists didn't want to do two meals a day, which, by the way, is intermittent fasting. All right? Uh, water as a preferred beverage. Not necessarily the exclusive beverage, but the preferred beverage. Sleep, getting adequate sleep, stress management, and of course, we are involved with the spiritual aspect of our life. If you think that all of these metabolic things don't affect us spiritually, think again. Because the way we express and the way we, 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 we know about God is through our brains, okay? And if the brain is affected, then our perception of God, our relationship with God can be affected by this. We think differently, okay? So now, exercise. Since most people talk about diet, 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 I thought I would uh, emphasize this time exercise, all right? 
Now, the thing about exercise is that you don't have to like it to do it. You don't have to like it to do it. You, you just decide to do it, okay? So, you know, I've, I've, I've known people and I've been, I've been there myself. You go to the mall. I take my wife to the mall, right? When I was younger, I take her to the mall and I'm looking for a place to park. And there's no place right in front of the mall. So I drive around for five minutes, you know, until I find a spot and then I put on the spot, right? You guys do that? You know what I should have done? And what I learned to do? Park all the way over there. Not, not let her out, <laughs> not let her out. We all park all the way over there, right? And we walk in, right? Get a few extra steps, okay? Everybody now has Fitbits and all these different kinds of things and your cell phones, if you have a smartphone, it has an app in there that will track your exercise. You can see what you're doing, right? When I first started to do this, using the old pedometers, <laughs> you know, those kind that you kind of clipped on and you ticked, <laughs> right? I, I use that. I thought, I thought I was, you know, during the day, I thought I was really pretty active. And uh, it turns out that I wasn't, okay? Uh, not as much as I thought. I thought a thousand, you know, 10,000 steps was going to be a piece of cake. Well, I, I wasn't doing 10,000 steps every day. So I measured myself. For one mile, for me, that's 2,300 steps. So for 10,000 steps, do the math. How many miles do I have to walk? Four miles. Once I said four miles, wow, that's a lot of walking. Right? A lot of walking, I thought. But you know what? In the course of my day, I can do 10,000 steps very easily. When I was working at the Lifestyle Center, I, and as a physician, I walked just from one part of the building to the other part of the building. And when I had patients in the hospital, just don't take the elevator, do up the stairs, go across there, right? You do this all day, right? And especially when I had appointments with um, the, the drug company men, you know, the detail men, we called them. When they came, I would say, we're not sitting in the office, we're going for a walk, okay? They usually spoke a lot shorter, <laughs> okay? Because we went on a walk, okay? So those who were really, really interested and had something to tell me, right, uh, they would stick with it, the others, they would, <laughs> they would start walking, and then they'd say, well, doctor, I see that you're busy. <laughs> Thank you very much. And they go their way, and I'm happy, but I get a walk-in, and they get a walk-in too, right? So there are things that you can do to, to build this into your day, all right? That's the idea. But um, really, the best kind of, 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 uh, of exercise is actually work, right? Do some gardening, housekeeping, uh, all of those kinds of things, you know, work on your car, uh, Especially gardening, it's a wonderful thing, you know, you wheel this around, you do this, your hands in the dirt, and whatnot. when you're done and you're sweaty and all that stuff, you go and you hug your wife, <laughs> and it's good fun, all right. <laughs> anyway, well, the benefits of exercise, uh, lower blood sugar, better weight control, emotionally we are much better, our brains work better, heart disease down, blood pressure is better controlled, stress management is improved, right? If we look at, the, at the, the issue of type 2 diabetes and the brain, you would see that, I'm not going to go through the whole slide, this is a, you, we have a whole set of things going on that actually increase our risk of not thinking right, of increasing our risk of dementia, including Alzheimer's disease, all of this related to type 2 diabetes. But 
if we look now at this metabolic syndrome, that's diabetes, abdominal obesity, high blood pressure, high glucose, triglycerides, low HDL in the blood, we have a whole complex of things. And what strikes you on this as something that we can do or not do? On the right-hand side, what is this? Exercise, okay? Exercise is a key issue. Uh, take it from me, right? This is looking at uh, fatty liver disease and diabetes, and now we know that everybody doesn't respond to exercise in the same way. If you have fatty liver, chances are your body is going to produce selenoprotein P. This thing actually causes you, even for the same amount of exercise, you don't lose as much weight and you don't get the same benefit. Because chemically, you are different. So there's some people who say, but I'm doing all the exercise and I'm not getting any benefit. Well, that's because you have another metabolic problem. You're not the same as the person next to you. You know, so often uh, we would have at the lifestyle centers, we would have husbands and wives come in. The husband really doesn't want to be there. The wife is really there. Uh, she wants to lose the weight. He has some weight to lose. They go on and we do uh, a session, right? And the husband, the weight just goes like this and the wife, is struggling and she says, I only lost two pounds in three weeks. And the husband lost 11 pounds without even trying, right? And the poor ladies would say, this is not fair. True, it's not fair. Life isn't fair, right? But part of it is how women are constituted, how men are constituted, and also whether or not she has... Um, uh, she has fatty liver or not. Now, this can be overcome. You know how it's overcome? By persisting in the exercise. You have to persist, okay? And this reduces the resistance, right? But there are other things that you're going to do to be able to reduce the fatty liver. Once this is taken care of, all of this thing goes away, right? Uh, let me go further. Here's this one. This guy is saying, what fits your busy schedule better? Exercising an hour a day or being dead 24 hours a day? <laughs> All right. So, for exercise, we can do continuous exercise or we can do interval exercise. Do we have an exercise physiologist or somebody who's going to be with them this week at all? No exercise person? Okay. Ah, yes, yes, yes. So, there's something called intermittent exercise. That's where you, you go rapid and then you slow down, but you don't stop, and you go rapid and you slow down and you don't stop, all right? Okay, that actually uh, is more efficient than continuous exercise, all right? Um, aerobic versus resistance, the, the ideal is actually both. And t just taking a walk after every meal. Now, this is not for, this is not a sprint but you take a walk after every meal. This has been demonstrated. You know, we've been saying this thing for years. Nobody decided to look at the, at the research until somebody, I think hearing Seventh-day Adventists talk about this and preaching it, right? they decided to do a study, and you know what they showed? Just walking after eating works just like insulin, right? And I have the, uh, I have the evidence to prove it, which I will show you in a little while. All right, sleep six to eight or seven to nine hours a night. All right, water, avoid added fructose. Fructose, okay, outside of the way God packaged it in the fruits uh, and in the vegetables, when we do an excessive amount of it, it actually works on the liver. It produces fatty liver, and, and in addition, it produces a compound 
that stops the body from being able to respond to insulin. So all those fructose, high fructose corn syrup and all those sugary drinks and whatnot that, that we have, yes, they may taste good, but it's better to leave them alone, retrain our, our, our taste buds. And I, let me tell you, I, I was a juiceaholic, man. Juice, juice, juice for everything, right? Uh, water was, you know. So if I can change, Anybody, well, I shouldn't say it that way, but I think anybody can say it's really. Uh, dietary patterns, we need a plant-based vegetarian or, or total vegetarian diet. That is, that is considering that uh, you will be hearing some things that you have to make sure that is part of that approach. Herbal adjuncts, you know, some people say, doctor, I want to use herbs. I want to use herbs to treat my diabetes. You're still in the pharmace pharmaceutical mindset when you say that because you're ignoring all of these things and you're going straight to this, you want to get a magic herb that will take care of your diabetes. How many of you have heard of people like that? They, they want to take this herb and this is going to cure them, right? And you know what? Sometimes people get played into this because somebody's going to be selling something and they're going to tell you that this is going to cure your diabetes, right? Don't listen to them, please. Right? There's no free lunch, okay? The diet, we talked about frequency of meal, no snacking, right? There are only three things that should pass between your lips, uh, between meals. You know what they are? Water, kind words, and kisses with the right person, all right? Next, energy restriction or not, uh, for most people, we overeat. We over-energize, okay? We're saving enough for, late, for a later day, right? Myself included. We need to cut back, right? We need to cut back. Next one, content, fiber, 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 fiber. This is, uh, this is, fi there's something wrong with my hand here. Fiber, fiber, all right? Uh, there are all kinds of issues with low fat versus high fat. I'm not going to get into that, but, uh, but typically what we talk about is a lower fat, particularly saturated fat, low saturated fat diet, right? Um, uh, protein, nuts and seeds. I remember the first, the first article that came out looking Actually, uh, Joanne Sabaté was the one who, uh, who did this with the Adventist Health Study. It, <laughs> he talked about nuts reducing uh, cholesterol and reducing heart disease, right? They didn't want to publish the article because in those days, fat, indiscriminately, they looked at all fat and they said nuts are fats. Therefore, your study must be wrong, okay? Finally, it got published, not in the New England Journal of Medicine, not in Lancet, not in British Medical Journal, not in Journal of the American Medical, those are the big ones, right? Not in Nature, not in Science, those are the big, big journals. No, 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 it got, in, it got published in Archives of Internal Medicine, which is a good journal, but you know, it's just not the top, right? And there was an editorial, <laughs> and the person, the expert who was writing about this editorial, he said, this goes against current understanding. And this might be an anomalous situation with the Adventist Health Study. Anomalous. In other words, don't, don't really take it seriously. But once that was published, other groups who had large databases, the Harvard Women's Study, the Harvard Physician Study, the Iowa Women's Study, they analyzed their data, and guess what? They found the same thing. 
And once they start to publish, well, now it's, now, now it's everybody, right? Now we know. But you know, it seems as though some Adventists never heard about this. Nuts. We're nuts not to eat nuts. <laughs> okay? All right. Uh, carbs. There's low carb. There's a whole debate over this. We're not going to get into that. But uh, suffice it to say, uh, if you're going to be eating a total plant-based diet, right, uh, you're going to be eating carbs. Okay? But the key would be to, to have good quality, non-starchy carbs. Uh, they work best. Okay? So now, here's the thing. I'm going to have to do a little demonstration here to, uh, to show you what's happening on this slide. The orientation is that the blue portion of the slide is the inside of the cell, okay? And for purposes of demonstration, this, this stage here is the inside of the cell, right? And the uh, tan area at the top of the slide, that's the outside of the cell. And so for purposes for here, you are in the outside of the cell, okay? All right. Now, I need, I need a, a guinea pig, so one of uh, my cohorts here, will, either one of you, just please come and have a seat in front because we're going we're gonna to use you, all right? Uh, utilize your services, <laughs> not, not use you, all right, good. Okay, so now, here's what's going on. Inside the cell, we have these, uh, these fellas. They are hanging out in the cell, and they're not really... Uh, doing anything until the doorbell rings. When the doorbell rings, they get up, they go to the wall, they stick their hands through a space in the wall, and they become the door. And they look for somebody to take inside. All right, can you please stand up? Okay. They're looking for Vicky. She is glucose. So they come, they grab Vicky, and they bring her inside the cell. Okay, now she's inside the cell, and they go back and hang out. Until the doorbell rings again. I, you're sitting in front. <laughs> so they go. They stick their hands in the door, uh, in the wall, they become the door, they grab, and they transport on the inside, and then they go and they sit back down, okay? Now, I can do this all day, <laughs> and I'll get to all of you. Thank you very much. This system is called the glucose transport system. It actually is a physical system that works. This was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology. But it got beaten out by something else. This mechanism, when it was first published, it was, you know, the big aha. So this is how it works. What is it that pushes the doorbell, so to speak, is insulin. So insulin comes and sits on a receptor. Now, there's some question as to whether that receptor really is on the surface or whether insulin actually passes through the membrane and turns on a doorbell on the inside. But we're not, that's not for us to, to debate here. We'll assume it's on, the, it's on the surface. The doorbell rings, and the insulin is the doorbell ringer, right? And that wakes up chemically 
the transporters, these are called glucose transporters, and in most of our cells, in our muscle cells, these are called glucose transporters type 4. So it's GLUT4 is the name of them. They get called up to the surface, and they incorporate themselves in the surface of the cell, and they attract glucose. They engulf the glucose, and they take it into the cell. They drop it off, and then they go back to where they were. All right? Is that understood? So, one more time, the doorbell rings. They go, grab inside, and they go back. Now, this is happening in you and in me millions of times every day. It's happening while you're sitting right there, right? So, we have these glucose transporters, wonderful thing. Then, something happened. They discovered that there were some glucose transporters that never responded to the doorbell of insulin. They were inside the cell, but they never responded when insulin was on the surface. And the question was, what do you do with these transporters? What are they there for? So some of the evolutionary scientists, they were saying, well, maybe it's a vestige of, uh, of, um, of evolution and it has no function and whatnot. But others, also evolutionary, said, no, it doesn't make sense. There must be something else. So they started to bathe the cells with different kinds of compounds to see if any of these compounds would stimulate this. And you know what? They found that if a particular compound was increased in the environment and therefore increased on the inside of the cell, these transporters got up and they went out looking for glucose. But now the question came, what is it that causes this chemical to rise in the cell? And the search was on, and it lasted about two and a half years until they found this. This is the insulin receptor. When insulin comes, these things happen, and these transporters go up to the surface. They become part of the surface, and glucose comes into the cell. This one is unresponsive to insulin but it's activated by something called 5' AMP activated kinase. When that works, this goes up to the surface. And what is it that causes this to be increased in the cell? Exercise. When we tell somebody with diabetes that they have to exercise, they have to be physically active, we're not giving them a suggestion. We're giving them a prescription. It's as potent as insulin. So ladies and gentlemen, if you don't take anything else away from today in terms of things that you can do, take this. Move. Move. God has made provision for our movement to be efficacious. Well, they do call it the Advent movement. <laughs> All right. Skeletal muscle is the most insulin sensitive, so when we move our muscles, this work, the impact of exercise on insulin sensitivity is evident for 24 to 48 hours, but it disappears after three to five days. So guess how often you have to do it? Every day, all right, good. 
regular physical activity necessary to improve insulin resistance, so walk after every meal, okay? Uh, this will get into, into dietary things and our time is up. So I'm just gonna leave you with the, with the exercise uh, uh, portion of our, of our talk. But you know, the Bible says, in him we live and move and have our very being. God wants us to be mobile, to mobilize physically for ourselves and physically for others. He wants us to have beautiful feet carrying the good news. And some of the things that we do carrying the good news may not be because we are talking, talking, talking. But he wants us to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Right? I pray that for the rest of your time here, you will be so blessed, so motivated, so inspired, and so challenged that you will not leave here the way you came. Please, I beg of you, consider the seriousness of what we're talking about and the seriousness of the time in which we live. We have an opportunity, not just for our own good, but also for the good of those that we love and those that may not love us, but whom God loves and who we ought to love too. Dear Father in Heaven, thank you so much for Dr. Zeno. Thank you that the love of God is the motivation for change. That while Satan sits on one shoulder to condemn, you sit on the other shoulder to convict and to give courage and to give inspiration and to, re and to rebuild and recover all that sin has broken and taken away. Lord, it's not easy, but it is possible through your power to gain strength and energy to resist the flesh and the things that pull us down. So I just pray for each and every one. You know the battle. I pray you give us courage. Your joy is our strength. And I pray that you would help us, Father, to do the things that we know to do that will, that will bring us the courage and joy and strength that is your will for us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.